Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 31st of May at 8.02 in the evening, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today we're in 1992, and the song is No, I Can't. Early Mountain Goats tapes don't really lend themselves to background listening, but if you're paying even the slightest attention, you'll notice something in the background of the recordings themselves. I'm talking, of course, about the imminent hum of the Panasonic RX-FT500 boombox, a recording device which makes its grinding, grounding presence so thoroughly known that John Daniel has referred to it as my fellow musician for the first decade of his career. In a way, the Panasonic sounds good, and in a way it doesn't. As Michael Powell comments for Pitchfork, early Mountain Goats albums sound as monochromatic as Xeroxes, no shadow, no nuance, just hard black lines and clean white space. He attributes much of this to the limits of the equipment. According to the device's operating instructions, its frequency range is between 50 and 12,000 Hz, which is another way of saying that the RX FT500 was not built to make recordings most people would buy or sell. Those parameters mean it wouldn't be sensitive enough to pick up the lowest note on a piano, though in a strange trade-off, the Panasonic's whirring gears provide a kind of bass equivalent. The boombox sits grainily at the bottom of the mix, its steadying, absorbent quality operating like a false bottom in the terrarium-building videos my wife is intermittently obsessed with, a buffer between the intensity of the song and the world. Like Powell, I too find that sound paradoxically comforting. After all, the unstable narrators, the shaky performances of the early work, are practically crying out for a strong foundation. I don't know if John would have seen any of it that way. The tape deck was an impulse purchase, picked up for about $89 at a circuit city in Montclair. More likely what appealed that day was the budget unit's point-and-click immediacy for a young artist overspilling with ideas and energy. With practice pointing it in the right place, to record guitar and vocals is no harder than starting a car. Before long, as Daniel told NPR, if I wasn't thinking about how stuff was supposed to sound, then this boombox sounded cool as hell. The blunt force of its compressing powers must have had something to do with that. The Panasonic grinds and roars around Daniel's blocky strumming. It bashes his reedy but powerful voice into the preternatural thinness of a blade. In 1996, Brian Eno drew links between CD distortion, the jitteriness of digital video, and the crap sound of 8-bit, as format features which will all be cherished and emulated as soon as they can be avoided. Tapes like The Hound Chronicles and Hot Garden Stomp share the quality Eno identified as the desirable sound of failure in modern art. The sound of things going out of control, of a medium pushing to its limits and breaking apart. The Panasonic mirrors a distorted guitar or a cracked voice, both of which it closely captured, in conveying an emotional cry too powerful for the throat that releases it the excitement of witnessing events too momentous for the medium assigned to record them. When those tapes were reissued by the original label, Shrimper Records, as a two-CD set in 2012, John's liner notes emphasised how alien their circumstances of production were from his current career model. These tapes did not have release dates, no one anticipated their coming into the world, and very few noticed or cared. Taking him at his word that being too strict about chronological sequence would misrepresent the spirit of the time, my chosen song for 1992, No, I Can't, was recorded that year, on the 17th of December at 9.34 in the morning, but first available for purchase on 1993's Transmissions to Horace. 
John notes that a good case can be made for either side of the proposition when it comes to his deliberately primitive recording practices. It makes sense to me here to think about what design theorists have called affordances, a catch-all term for the potential uses or actions latent in materials or designs. This concept, as literary critic Caroline Levine explains it, alerts us to all the uses any particular material is capable of being put to. Diamonds afford hardness and durability as well as sparkling light. Wood affords durable structures as well as the making and stoking of fires, and so on. It also makes us, sometimes painfully, aware of their limits, the restrictions intrinsic to particular materials and organising principles. Diamonds are pretty when they shine, but they don't burn easy. To turn their light into heat, you need something like a blowtorch burning at 900 degrees Celsius. You could do it if you had to, but you'd be subjecting yourself and your associates to reasonably extreme conditions. But then mountain goat songs are often about extreme conditions, about cranking up the gain, pushing past the limits, taking opioid pills in combinations not approved by the FDA to test whether you really just can't do things your body wasn't meant to. No, I Can't isn't, at first glance, a song about this kind of self-destructive intensity. It's a song about getting a home visit, or a series of home visits, from someone who seems to care enough about you to bring you candy, furniture, and a pet to keep you company. But it has its own kind of lurching inward dread, the verse is propelled along by a series of nervous variations on the dull thunk of E minor. The person singing is grateful to receive the kinds of objects with which you might expect the world of an early mountain goat song to be furnished. Some flowers, some books, a radio. But in the jauntier major chord chorus, they also thank their visitor for a lamp and a sofa. You've got to wonder what they had in there to begin with. I don't know what I did without it. After a while, the list of gifts starts to feel like an answer to the questions raised in a 1965 hymn by socialist composer Sidney Carter, drawing on Christ's words about caring for the least of his people in Matthew 25, verses 44 and 45. I was cold, I was hungry. Were you there? Were you there? When I needed a shelter, were you there? And when the final item, a coat, is acknowledged, it calls forth a cry of desperate human need. I've been freezing in here. I've been freezing in here. John's comments on the boombox itself, towards the end of the first phase of its use life in the notes to All Hail West Texas, find a similar solace in its stubborn tenacity. The unit's inexplicable self-originating will to go on echoes some of the boneheaded ideas that motivate the characters it documents. Why did the Panasonic Corporation make a device like this? with a condenser microphone which didn't condense, but sat right next to the moving gears, so that anyone recording songs was at the same time accidentally recording the act of recording them, as Grayson Haver Curran writes for NPR. The singer invokes the hand of a person behind all this, describing him as an ornery little fellow who will have no sound without a second sound to obscure and pollute it. But beneath the layers of archness and irony, I can't help wondering if that's a self-portrait. If John, too, took comfort in there being something on these tracks besides himself, something which, like the plural band name, was impersonal and consistent, and always came into the room before he did, laying itself down to purr like a contented cat. No, I Can't might be read as a song about the limits of self-sufficiency, of thinking that you have everything you need, including your own company, and then realising eight lines later that something is still lacking, that there are more things a human being requires to live. The fact it was re-recorded three years later on Songs for Peter Hughes in 1995 suggests the singer might have felt the song didn't have everything it needed either. The later version adds a clear counting, more defined guitar muting, and a supple bass line and harmony vocal courtesy of Rachel Ware. 
It also throws in a gleeful mention of a trusty Panasonic boombox, though the model in question is tantalisingly, but I think irrelevantly, misnamed. Ware and her bass, along with other members of the Bright Mountain Choir, start appearing on Goat's recordings from the Hound Chronicles onwards, but the more polished collaboration here is an early indication of Daniel's desire to continue growing in the work he produces until the minute they put me in the ground, who sees restlessness as the most important quality for a musician to cultivate. Hughes himself, in an NPR piece reflecting on the albums he appeared on between 2002 and 2012, writes about studio recordings as baby pictures of songs that will go on to have long lives in performance. How much more must that be the case with John's homemade tapes? Imperfect, squalling snapshots in which you're hearing a song as close to the moment of its birth as you can get it, sometimes only a minute old. All of which, of course, makes me wonder what I was doing on the 17th of December 1992 at 9.34 in the morning. I don't have any photos here from that Christmas, but I do have one from my second birthday, taken once again at my nan's house in Market Deeping, where I spent most mornings once my mum had gone back to work after an alarmingly short six weeks of allocated maternity leave. Having followed her parents out to this part of the country from the sprawl of Maidenhead, she tempted for an early version of the Environmental Protection Agency before finding permanent office work with a crop protection advocacy group who were in practice lobbyists for the pesticide industry. Cue the piano outro to heel turn two. If you look closely at the cake in the picture and ignore the haunted doll in the corner, this image of a topless blonde-haired boy sitting at a dark wooden table also reflects its rural surroundings. Around this time, I've become briefly obsessed with tractors, perhaps because it was easy enough to take a kid along to agricultural fairs at the East of England showground to admire the gathered ranks of John Deere's and Massey Ferguson's, I couldn't tell you which vehicle was the model for the tractor-themed birthday cake in the picture. I guess I'm drinking Robinson's fruit and barley. I don't know how much I'm speaking by this point, but what I'm thinking is probably something along these lines. Thank you for the candles. Thank you for the chocolate tea cakes. Now I have everything I need. Thank you for sticking around to the end. Here are a few more small shards of shrapnel I couldn't fit into the main episode. Kyle Barber's magisterial archive, The Annotated Mountain Goats, gives a list in the footnotes of different gifts which the visitor brings across the various live versions of No, I Can't. You can find the whole thing on his website, but these are some of my favourites. Some apples, a starfish, a monkey jug, a pound of coffee, some whiskey, fine silverware, and two albums, Arab Straps, The Weekend Never Starts Around Here, and an original 1978 copy of Saplan Pour Moi by Plastic Bertrand, another performer whose early recordings have been subject to much biographical scrutiny. In his memoir, Time Flowing Backwards, Graham Jeffries of the New Zealand band Cake Kitchen describes a mid-1990s tour of Europe where the Mountain Goats played the opening act. I just couldn't find the right place in the main piece to share this evocative story of John in Munich attempting to record a cover of Springsteen's Born in the USA. Every time he got near the end of the song, the volume became so loud that it made each version unusable because the needles of the VU's meters were totally overloaded and the end of the song murderously distorted. Daniel grew up frustrated with the LA Times rock review column berating any new artist for lacking the affirmative optimism of Bruce Springsteen, and I could talk about the many differences between them all day, but I wouldn't be surprised if the highways jammed with broken heroes on a last chance power drive is where the needle jumped into the red. Take your foot off of the brake. For Christ's sake. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. 
Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. The songs on Transmissions to Horace, Songs for Peter Hughes, and 1992's Songs for Petronius were all re-released on the 2002 compilation Bitter Melon Farm. You can buy the other 1992 release, The Hound Chronicles, as part of a two-CD reissue from Shrimper, which also contains Hot Garden Stomp. Thanks to John Darnell for letting me quote from his songs, and to Camilla Chen and Dave Talbot for the drawing of Indiana Sawgrass on my arm in the header image. The sources of all other quotes are either linked to in the main text of the newsletter, or given in the footnote references. The pace of turning out one of these episodes every week has got a little difficult for me. It's grading, or marking season, and I want to make sure I'm giving myself enough time to fully research and enjoy each episode I record, so from here on out I'm going to be updating bi-weekly. The next episode for 1993 will be coming out on June 14th. If you're enjoying the podcast and want some bonus content next Monday, you might like to know that we have an Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where I post new episodes, answers on game shows, which I only know because of them having previously featured in Mountain Goat songs, and pictures of my cat interacting with the Panasonic RX FT500 boombox, which I just bought on eBay, and which I'm planning to experiment with a lot more soon through some practice as research recordings once I get the replacement belts fitted. If you want to hear the results, follow the Instagram, and you can also find me on Twitter at NotRockyHorror. You can now also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This week, Richard is getting into lateral tape motion.